Abiso Musiya on SAFM. So then uh, let's uh, talk about this research paper. Let's welcome uh, on the line the, the, the man who's put it together here, uh, Dr. Habib Norbai, and uh, his position is a senior lecturer and sports scientist affiliated to the University of Johannesburg, as I've mentioned, but I think he'll give us more background. Uh, Dr. Norbai, good evening, and thank you very much for speaking to us on SAFM. Good evening, Tabiso. It's very good to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Just for the benefit of everyone, just uh, you can just give us your background. Who is Dr. Habib Norbai? Well, very briefly, I'm a sports scientist and academic at the University of Johannesburg. And for me, academia and community engagement is very important. And for, uh, there's no better combination to make a difference within society. And uh, so I'm an academic by day and humanitarian by night. And uh, this is why that kind of motto drives me to do studies like this, because we begin to understand that when we do studies of this nature, we begin to understand the depth of inequality in South Africa in many sectors, not just within sport, but even with healthcare, with employment, with housing, etc. So in so many levels, we find the depth of inequality. I mean, just with the coronavirus pandemic right now, we begin to see that the most vulnerable are going to be those who are poor and who are from impoverished communities. And those who are mainly have recovered from this virus are those who actually have medical aid or have some sort of adequate healthcare structure. So to come back to this paper, we begin to understand the significant depth of inequality within the sports arena. And were you surprised by your findings or are they similar to what you would have expected? So I had a hypothesis because I've been an avid uh, cricket follower and a former player and coach for many years. Mm. And I always wanted to know what, if I had to answer this question of where are our most successful players coming from? And so this is my hypothesis, is that where do most of our players come from? Is it public schools? Is it boys-only schools? Is it private schools? And after I had done the analysis of the data that I had got, I was actually surprised. And I had to actually take a day break because I was surprised from what I had found. And I had to take a day break to, uh, to think and understand, how am I going to write up the findings of this paper? And a lot of people would think that, you know, that's, sense in logic, but when you put it in black and white, you begin to understand the severity of where we are right now, not just from a cricket perspective, but within a sporting uh, sector within South Africa. And uh, in your, uh, okay, you've looked at the Proteas players post-isolation until now. Firstly, how were you able to find this info? What were your sources? So the sources were mainly online. Uh, we looked at, uh, well, I looked at Wikipedia, um, also looked at ESPN Quick Info which is a widely uh, sourced and um, engaged uh, platform for a lot of cricket and followers. respectable. Yeah. I even looked at the South African national, um, the South African cricket magazines that, are, that is published as well, as well as the Cricket South Africa annual books. And along with these different types of manuscripts, both online and physical, I had to do quite a bit of data mining to find the information that I needed to build a consensus and argument around the research question. And the research question was... Mm-hmm. Is it an incident or a strategic contributing factor for South African cricket success if you attend a boys-only school or a school where it's either co-ed or private? And so those were the kind of sources that I had to look at. And uh, th- that's the kind of information uh, that, were, that I was able, to, was, I was able to, to retrieve. And I must also acknowledge Mr. John Wright, who's an avid cricket writer and researcher for many decades, and he was also able to ascertain the information that I'd had or that I had collated was, in fact, validated and factual. And so once I've collated all this type of information, I was able then to 
analyze the data and categorize players on the different types of groupings within the paper. Okay, and we're going to get into the paper in more detail, but I think it's crystal clear here that most Proteus players come from this boys-only schools, right? Because the numbers are there. A majority. Uh, yes. Obviously, we have to understand individual variations because each player's journey has been different. But mm-hmm. when you look at it from a conceptual perspective, we see that more than 60% of the players who have represented South Africa from early 1990s till now have gone to a boys-only school. So whether Mm. it's a private school or a co-ed school Mm. is not really relevant to the question. What's really important here is that it's a boys-only school. That is Mm. a real key finding here because it's a kind of culture that is embedded within a boys-only school that provides the learner or the student with an engaging sporting culture for them to be to, to be successful. And I think later on we can discuss those factors sure. that allow for these cricketers to be successful within an environment of a boys-only school. Before we discuss those factors, uh, Dr. Habib and Norbai, please explain to us the categorization of the schools because you've put the schools into different categories. Yeah, so the, the, there were different categories with regards to how we uh, looked at the schools. So a co-ed private school, um, so that means uh, those that uh, were co-ed, so it was both boys and females who attended the, the private school. Then we looked at a co-ed public school that wasn't um, private-owned, but it was state, well, more of a state school where both boys and girls attended a school. And then the last categorization was a boys-only school. And then the, the, the fourth one was a boys-only public school. So those are the four different categories that we had. Um, so just to summarize, the first one was a co-ed private school. The second one was a co-ed public school. The third one was a boys-only private school. And the fourth one was a boys-only public school. So we found that a lot of the players had attended either categories three or four, which is generally boys-only school in nature. And uh, that was the, the different categories uh, that, uh, that I looked at. Okay, before we go any further, we've already got a voice note that's come through on our WhatsApp number, which is 061-4104-107. Let's go to that, and you can keep them coming. Good evening, Tabisa. Good evening to your guest. It's Libra here in East London. You know, it's not surprising, you know, to hear the report because you have seen the high inequality of, uh, you know, uh, players and the proteas. And uh, even these black African players, they come from those, you know, uh, boys' school only. So my question is, is he going to submit this report to Cricket South Africa? Is he planning to give it to Cricket South Africa? And what can he advise Cricket South Africa uh, to do in terms of levelling the playing field and looking at township schools? It's Libra here in East London. London. Thank you. Thanks for that, uh, Libra. Uh, Dr. Norby, are you planning to share this with Cricket SA? What's the plan? Definitely. Uh, the, this paper was recently published in March 2020, about two months ago. So I certainly am now going to compile a report um, to Cricket South Africa, which hopefully they would take into consideration, because I know that there is work being done on the ground in terms of grassroots level, in terms of different communities. But my question is, to what extent and on what, on what qualitative level is this being administered in marginalized communities? So my answer to a parent, if a parent comes to me and says, where should I uh, send my boy to which school if he wants to play for South Africa one day? There's two sides of the, of the coin. Mm-hmm. The one side of the coin shows that if they, they sh- send this, the boy or send their child to a boys-only school, there's a high likelihood that they will be successful in their cricketing career. We can't guarantee that they will play for South Africa. Mm -hmm. What we can guarantee is that they will have a good environment 
and a good exposure to play the highest level or the best cricket possible if they go to a boys-only school. The other side of the coin for many parents in South Africa is that they want to send their boys to a boys-only school, but the problem is finance and affordability. Mm. So what do they do in that instance? And the unfortunate recommendation there is that if they are not going to a boys-only school, they have to be exceptionally talented to be scouted and identified for their talent if they want to be able to play cricket at the highest level possible. So I make a bold statement there. But this is gathered not just from my findings or from my research, but even having worked within the system for many years, that we find that there's a lot of, there, there, there's a lot of talented cricketers that go by the wayside. So if I have to use the coronavirus example right now, which is very different, but at the moment we are being shown the confirmed cases of the virus in South Africa, which is nearly 20,000 but it excludes the unreported cases of those who are infected. Very similarly, in a sporting context, we have confirmed players who have been identified to be to have talent and who could represent potential within a particular sport. But there are also many unreported, talented players who are also falling by the wayside, who are not giving an opportunity, either because they weren't identified, or if they were identified, they never had the different resources or the affordability to take their cricket or their schooling to the next level. So that would be my recommendation to parents if they were asking that question, is to what should they do if they want their child to play cricket at the highest level? So coming back to the initial uh, listener's um, comment, is that we certainly, I'm certainly going to send this report to Cricket South Africa. A discussion will certainly be needing to, to will be required to, to be done on a level that we can... Uh, Improve, improve the current uh, system of uh, whereby cricketers are being developed at the grassroots levels, but mm-hmm. also what's happening at the public schools in terms of ingraining that kind of sporting culture, mm-hmm. as well as improving infrastructure and the facilities that are key determinants for boys excelling at a particular sporting code. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, if you've just joined us, we're just talking to Dr. Habib Nobai, who's uh, uh, co- uh, put together this research paper, basically, about uh, uh, Proteus players, most of them coming from these boys-only schools. We're going to get into the results of his findings um, after this break. At SAFM Radio and at Tabiso Musiya on Twitter. Talking about Twitter, let's just acknowledge some of the tweets. Uh, Tami says, uh, looking forward to reading this paper, but from what uh, he's saying, the study seems to confirm what we have always suspected. There is a reason why identified talent is most often funded uh, to attend these schools, both in cricket and also in uh, rugby. And uh, where's the other tweet that I saw? Okay, I've got it here. It says, um, this is from... And daily official who says that this is not sustainable since the talented kids from poor backgrounds will not have a chance to play at the highest level. And this will eventually make cricket become an exclusive sport, which is bad and contradicts the spirit of friendship, which the sport is aimed at. Uh, Keep those voice notes coming in uh, to this number 061-4104-107 if you have any questions or comment uh, for our guest or to our guest. Let's look now at some of the findings here uh, uh, Dr. Norbay. Uh, starting with the World Cup Proteas, a huge number of them come from these boys only schools since 1992. Take us through that. Yeah, so out of the 119 players who represented South Africa at the World Cup competitions between 1992 and 2019, we found that 78 players attended a boys-only school, and that makes up 
65% of this group that who represented South Africa, 65% had attended a boys-only school. Now, interestingly, the 1999 team, when they went to England, they only had two players who attended co-ed public schools, and this team was regarded as one of the strongest South African World Cup cricket teams. So only two of those players Mm. had gone to a co-ed public school, where the others went to a boys-only school. All right? And the only ICC tournament South Africa had won was with a similar team where they won the 1988 Champions Trophy. That was the only ICC tournament that, that South Africa had won since sports, since uh, readmission into cricket after apartheid. And similarly, the 1998 team had only one player who had attended a co-ed public school. Mm. All the others went to a boys-only school. So this raised an important point. By just looking at the stats from the World Cups, do boys-only schools feed players as a, as a strategic intent to represent South Africa at ICC tournaments, or is it a mere coincidence? And I don't know if it's coincidence, because when I look at this data, I see that a lot of the boys who have represented South Africa at the World Cups is a lot more prevalent compared to the other formats of the game. Yes, it's quite interesting because we've spoken to a few members of that 99 World Cup squad. They lost in the semis to Australia. Of course, we all know what happened there. Alan Donald, Lance Klusner, we've spoken to, um, Herschel Gibbs. They've all said they felt that this was the strongest uh, ever protest team going into a World Cup and this was their best chance of winning a World Cup with this team in 1999. And you say most of these players came from this boys-only school. Correct, and I agree with him. I think it was certainly the strongest team we ever had in the history of World Cups for South Africa. And I, I would agree with that. And a lot, a lot of them had gone on to, to represent South Africa who went to a boys-only school. Let's look at Test Cricket now. What do your findings tell you about the, 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 the protest players that have represented the country in Test Cricket? So about 61% of players who played test cricket for South Africa between 1992 and 2009 had attended boys' own schools. So that's 4% of a difference from the World Cup team that, that we had seen. Um, so it was, it was also consistent with the findings that we had seen from, from the World Cup. I think a common question that some people may bring up is that some of these players that we analysed had attended two different types of schools between grade 8 and grade 12. Mm. And we had taken the school that they had attended for the most part of their high school careers between grade 8 and grade 12. So I think that's something that also the public needs to understand of how the categorization was done. For mm. example, if player A rented, uh, if player A went to um, public school or co-ed school from grade 8 to grade 9, but then went to a boys-only school from grade 10 to grade 12, we took the latter because it was three out of the five years of high school that was it boys only school and also um, when they are playing from between grade eight and grade uh, between grade ten and grade twelve they're also in a position to rep- to showcase their talent which increases their chances of rep- of some sort of repre- representation at the under seventeen or under nineteen level. And by the way, this uh, paper, folks, has uh, all those players that uh, that basically they worked out the stats from. They've got all their names. They've got all the schools uh, that they went to. I mean, from 92 to um, 2007, I'm looking at now, Lutz, Lutz Bosman is also there. Uh, remember him, Justin Kemp, the likes of um, also there. So so they've really gone into a lot of detail there. Roger Telemachus, Steve Elworth, who's now with the England Cricket Board, of course, uh, everybody is there and has been counted accounted for here. What about ODI cricket and T20s, uh, Dr. Norby, then? How different are the numbers compared to Test and World Cup cricket? 
Yeah, so it goes a little bit lower, not very much, but similarly to uh, to Test cricket. Um, with ODI cricket, there were 59% of players who attended boys-only schools between uh, between 1992 and 2019. So we see that there's like a 2% difference between Test cricket and uh, between um, ODI cricket. Um, there was a significant difference between players uh, who attended boys-only school that played T20 cricket for South Africa between... 2005 in 2019, and those who attended co-ed public schools. So those who represented South Africa between 2005 and 2019 was about 53.7%, whereas those who attended co-ed public schools during the time frame was about um, 8% lower at 46%. So that's uh, the kind of, uh, that, that's, that's the stats that we have, that 54% of um, players went to a boys-only school when they played T20 cricket for South Africa, whereas the other 46% went to co-ed public schools. So it's not really a difference. It's kind Mm -hmm. of 50-50 over there. But we see that it's a lot more prevalent in the focus of the game where longer duration is required, such as tests or ODI cricket. Okay, let's acknowledge some of the voice notes uh, that have come through on 061-4104-107. Yes, yes, Tabiso, and uh, to the professor there. A very interesting observation of the boys' school and uh, with the cricket culture. I think it's yeah, it's got to do with the culture. But uh, I'd love to know whether is it still the whole, is it the situation still the same with Eastern Cape? I know most of the African boys uh, do come from the Eastern Cape, where I do have my son also as well. And uh, although I did send him to Gauteng, because I do believe that Gauteng has got a, well, an interesting kind of a culture, although he loved Gauteng as well. But uh, has that extended to, my question is that, has that extended to the Eastern Cape Province schools? Because I would love to hear your your comment on that one. Hi, Tabisa. Is that study... Would it be applicable and is it only unique to cricket? If a similar study, according to his own analysis, was done for the other sporting codes, soccer, baseball, all the others, basketball, tennis, would that, what he has found out, still come out the same? Would it still be valid? Let's make it. Okay, thanks for that. Um, I'll start with the last one, uh, uh, Dr. Norubai, because it's a common question also on uh, on uh, on uh, Twitter. Somebody said, I bet you if you go this route with the rugby, you might find similar results. Is it unique to cricket? Do you think you might find similar results when it comes to other sporting codes? I think we would. Um, and um, having spoken to quite a number of experts and professionals within this area, we would find a similar um, uh, finding. But we would need to validate that from doing similar research in other sporting codes. And um, obviously we can't paint all the other sporting codes with the same brush because each sporting code has different types of contextual determinants that we have to consider. But I would think that we would find similar instances where we we look at rugby, whether we look at hockey, uh, if we look at netball, swimming. Athletics. I mean, obviously, in, in some instances, soccer and athletics can be a different type of sporting code because we understand the disparities within those within those sports already. But my good friend and colleague, Mr. Solomon Ntombeni, um, he's doing his PhD with me, 
and at the University of Johannesburg. And he's looking at elite athletes from historically disadvantaged areas that have presented South Africa at the Summer Olympic Games. And we want to see what were their support structures and support systems that have contributed towards success for them representing South Africa at the Olympic Games. So, and how many of those since 1992, from the, from the Olympics in Barcelona till 2016 at Rio de Janeiro, how many of those athletes who came from rural townships or marginalized communities went on to represent South Africa at the Olympic Games? And what were their determinants or the definitions of success for why they had gone on to represent South Africa at the highest level. So I, I, I certainly feel that we need to replicate similar studies in other sporting codes. The methodology can be similar, but mainly it's a little bit of tweaking based on what kind of information is available for each sporting code. And I think not just liaising with each of the relevant sporting body like Cricket South Africa or the South African Football Association or the South African Rugby Union, but I think even SASCOC at large that oversees all the sporting codes need to really come together to address this kind of issue. Now, they've put out a number of policies and documents, mm. such as the Transformation Plan, which is part of the National Development Plan by, by 2030. Um, they've even put out an EPG plan with regards to transformation. And surprisingly there, they even found that a glaring finding from that was that transformation among cricket and netball was, wasn't up to scratch compared to the other sporting codes. So to answer the question from the first listener mm. that spoke about culture, mm. culture is definitely a crucial factor. And we, we see that having this kind of culture ingrained into the school is really important. You know, if we, if we go back to understand why certain cultures are embedded within boys-only schools or private schools, it goes back to the colonial era. And the context and background of school sports needs to be taken into account because during colonialism in South Africa, exercise in sport were essential ingredients in shaping young boys in well-known British schools. And this had led the world in an age of empire and expansion where colonialism came into South Africa. And this kind of approach manifested in many South African schools in the 1800s or the late 1800s, and particularly in boys-only schools, which was also described as elite schools at the time. And subsequent to that, cricket development in South Africa closely followed this path of the British imperial expansion, mm. and the imperial development of cricket in the region had led to the formation of its own administration in line with the statues of these kinds of virtues and these kinds of attributes. So we really need to understand the context of where this had started, because if we understand the context of where it had started, we understand why a similar culture is still being displayed at schools right now. And to answer that question is that culture is a main factor. Um, and in addition to that, we also have other factors that can play a role, which is individual talent, the number of pupils in a school, the coaching standards. Coaching standards play a huge role, and we find that coaching is a lot higher in boys-only schools compared to other schools. There was and given South Africa's history, race and class can also play a role with that, with that culture as well. There was also a question about uh, whether is this also includes the Eastern Cape, if I understand it, if I understood the, the question correctly, whether it includes the Eastern Cape and what your findings found about the Eastern Cape. And what's interesting here is that you also did a list of the top 10 feeder cricket schools for South African schools caps until 2018. And top of the list is a school from PE, Grey High School. Yeah, 
Hello, Dr. Norbay. Yes, definitely. So, so we, we looked at, um, I mean, out of the 26 schools that I looked at, 24 schools were, were, were boys-only schools that, you know, who, who represented where, where, where the South African schools captain came from. Yeah. And, and uh, we see that um, even uh, when I did the analysis, it wasn't just a specific province a year then that I looked at. I looked at all the provinces. So wherever there were players represented uh, in, so, in the South African team, I had looked at which school they had went to, which includes some of the schools as well within the Eastern Cape. Sure. And we, so we can see that Gray School is, uh, as well is a Gray High School. It's also part of that mix within the South African schools captains between 1994 and 2019. Just back to that for clarity's sake. Since, so between this period, 24 of the 26 SA schools cricket captains came from boys-only schools. That's correct. Sure. Okay, let's go to more voice notes. Uh, keep them coming. I see there are quite a, a lot of them. I think we'll take three at a time if we can. I, I think uh, we, 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 we're looking at it in the wrong way. Um, after, we, 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 after the democratic dispensation, when we build the schools that were built after that, we never built cricket fields, we never built rugby fields, we didn't even build soccer fields. So the infrastructure in those in all the public schools, including the new schools that have been built, is very poor. So you cannot come and say, "All hey, boys, those are the schools that uh, had the good infrastructure, and they've maintained that." So basically, it's uh, it's our fault as a new government and uh, as, a, as communities that our schools are built without the infrastructure. So instead of blaming, uh, uh, looking at it in a bad way, it might just motivate us that actually sport is learned well at school. Uh, invest in infrastructure, get professional coaching, and all these kids will be given an equal opportunity. Thank you very much. This is Justice Mawasa and Babati. Okay, thanks, Justice. I, I think let me come in there. Um, I, I'm not sure if you've been following since we started. I don't think that this is a blame game. Nobody's looking at blames, but it's just nobody's blaming anybody. It's a research paper, and I was going to get to it at the end because I've, 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 been, I've, I've been able to read this paper. And actually, Dr. Norbay actually talks about the lack of facilities and the infrastructure and the lack of uh, equal opportunities for all of our kids. He even simplifies it, and he says the first challenge is that some schools in the townships don't even have water. They don't even have toilet and that's already a problem. Doc, do you want to pick up on that? No, of course. I mean, I don't think we'd be saying that if you're not going to attend a boys-only school, you're not going to be successful. We, yeah. What we are saying is that it is a certainly a contributing factor for cricket success in South Africa and for boys representing uh, South Africa at the highest level. That's what we're saying. We're not saying that it's a key determinant. So there's a number of factors that we need to take into account. There's going to be a lot of other factors that we need to identify as to the reasons for why things are successful and also the reasons for why things are not successful. And I think it's also important that we do not paint every every certain situation with the same brush. Mm. There's no one-size-fits-all approach here. Each school and each province will have their own challenges and their own advantages. But what we can certainly identify on a macro level I mean, those kinds of things that we've mentioned now, no running water, facilities mm. for sport, infrastructure, those are, those are factors that are largely on the mind that need fixing and sustainability over a longer period. But on a macro level, we see that attending a boys-only school is certainly a contributing factor for playing cricket at the highest level. Okay, let's take uh, the other voice notes. Tabiso, uh, Zico Smith all the way from Macau. Tabiso, this is really worrisome, you know. Um, if all the if most sixty uh, percent of the players are coming from boys only, what does it mean 
to the future of cricket in our country. What does it mean to a rural boy or rural girl in Macau or somewhere far? You know, really like the sport that we are, we are loving. First, it was uh, racism. Now, this kind of discrimination. Our cricket really needs to be looked into. This cannot continue as like it is. It is really worrisome, Tabiso. Yeah, hi, evening. Uh, bias rules in schoolboy cricket. No doubt about that. The advantage of going to one of these elite schools is huge. It is obvious and deeply unfair. Uh, guys who come from all boys schools always get selected. It's it's the business. The only schools to attend if you really want to make it as a professional cricketer. It's a, a springboard to success. So what I would love the dog to to really make certain is that are they are they really sure that going forward the ground levels are going to be neutral and what steps are they taking to see to it that talent is is really not overlooked and people are being selected on merit not because of certain favors or their educational background ap in islam evening tabiso i wanted to ask doc um unfortunately um i haven't checked the paper maybe i'll do so tomorrow but well, I just want to ask a question. Has he also tried with regards to the data to also check like other countries? Uh, as much as like he checked like, you know, South African players, like uh, where most of them come from, as I saying, coming from boys school. Has he also tried to compare that to like other, to, with regards to like other countries so that he can see um, where also cricket South Africa can be able to improve in their ways of doing things. Um, thank you very much and have a great evening. Okay, thanks guys for those voice notes. Let's go through those questions. I'll start at the top. I think the first two are similar. Uh, Dr. Norbai, they basically just saying, what does it mean for those that come in the townships? This is unfair. This is biased. And I think it goes back to your question then. Is it incidental? Is it strategic? But most importantly, is it sustainable? Because I'll tell you why. I was at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio and um, there was no South African uh, female swimmer. In, 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 in the pool, basically. The only one was in open water swimming. And when I started asking around just from people in the swimming community, it turns out that actually uh, the pool, excuse the pun, that they've been using to find these swimmers was just too small. All these swimmers are coming from just certain schools in the suburbs, like maybe 10 or 11 schools in the suburbs, and they've never really reached out to, to the disadvantaged communities. They've never really branched out to go and find these other swimmers. And that's why now they hit a dead end in 2016 and they couldn't find any more uh, female uh, swimmers. So is this sustainable? going forward? Yeah, so I think what the listeners need to understand is that this paper is not to try to infer any form of discrimination in sport. Mm. What we're trying to provide, what I'm trying to provide, is for listeners and readers to get an understanding of where we are right now from a cricket perspective mm. and also gives you a bit of a bigger picture in terms of what's happening in other sporting codes in South Africa. We will never reach a level of equality where we can bridge the divide on an equal basis. It's very hard in any country to have everyone going through a phase of equality. It's like perfection. No one is perfect, but you strive towards perfection. Similarly, in this context, equality is very challenging to achieve. We have to strive towards equality. And right now what we're seeing is that inequality is being maintained and it's carrying on. And through different types of studies and findings like this, and as I said in the start of the interview, it makes us understand the depth 
of inequality in our country, not just within sport, but also within healthcare, employment, housing, etc. So to come back to the, what the listeners have said, we can't really have a neutral basis of equality moving forward. And this is why certain sporting codes and SASOC in the government have um, put forward the transformation agenda, because for them, it was a way of trying to level the playing field. Unfortunately, it also depends on how you define transformation. You can't level the playing field just by in, including quota players because then there's going to be questions of players being based on merit or quota. You've got to provide, as best as you can, accessible opportunities to all, to all. So that means if there's infrastructure and facilities in a number of boys only schools that we spoke about, then obviously having the similar infrastructure and facilities and other factors in those other schools where we have those talented athletes and those talented sportsmen and sportswomen are coming from. So it's very hard to achieve a level playing field by just focusing on quota selections or by by focusing on transformation at the top. Transformation needs to start at the bottom because we see that it's starting to affect what's happening at the top. Mm. So right now, transformation is being shown from a top to bottom model what it should be. It should be a bottom to top approach where we see what's happening at the grassroots level and then there's a longitudinal plan from 10 to 20 years where we see down the line where we can start to achieve a neutral basis of equality, but we will not be able to achieve an absolute base of equality. So my message to those first two listeners Mm. is if we in South Africa can adopt a transformation agenda that starts at the grassroots level, at the bottom, and then moving its way towards the top, we will start to see sustainable change. But if we go at the rate where we are, where we're not really worried about what's happening at the ground, but we're just providing quota selections at the top, we're not going to fix the cause. We're only going to manage the symptom, and the symptom is to have a representative type of team. That's not going to fix the problem. We've got to treat the cause, which means we need transformation right at the grassroots level. The other question was whether you've been able to look at other countries and what they're doing. I know in this paper there's a link with Barbados. Yeah, so I think it's very important to also understand that we can't really compare to other countries because South Africa is very unique. I mean, we have a number of socioeconomic disparities uh, we have different racial, uh, you know, codes and quotas where in other countries, quotas is not really emphasized on depending on the country. Uh, we also have to look at different types of coaching and scientific standards. You know, in South Africa, we've got a very high level of sports science and coaching standards. The problem is dissemination of those from a practical perspective, especially in the public domain where we see that infrastructure and facilities are an issue. So we can't really compare it to other countries, and therefore I have not compared this to other countries. However, I have alluded to the fact with regards to Barbados, because Barbados in the West Indies had a similar type of context and background where they also went through a period of colonization and where they also uh, integrated that essence of culture within their schools where certain sporting codes and codes of excellence were achieved in their schools. And another interesting aspect where West Indies is similar to South Africa is that they have a large proportion of players who are from underprivileged or marginalized areas. In the West Indies, they play a form of cricket which is known as Calypso cricket. (laughs) And Calypso cricket is largely participated on the beaches Mm. where the emphasis there is to have fun and to hit the ball as best as you can. It's like our kind of baker's mini cricket, but it's more 
uh, informal in the West Indies, where they focus more on talent and having fun. The same context is within, within the East, Middle East uh, with regards to Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan. The emphasis there is on scoring runs and to, and, to, and, to, and to take wickets. The emphasis is not to be very technical in, in your approach. And my PhD was, was done on batting techniques and cricket, specifically looking at the batting backup technique. And I had done this PhD with Professor Tim Nose. And over the years, we found out of nearly 500 batsmen that we had analyzed, that you don't really need to have a 100% technical coaching textbook technique to be successful in cricket. But you need certain elements to your personal advantage that can enhance you to be more successful at the game. And what we had found was advancing a certain backlift, which was unconventional to the coaching literature, that had been successful as well for most of the cricket batsmen from these different levels of cricket. Now, when we come back to Pakistan and India and Sri Lanka and the West Indies, the formality or system of being technically correct or looking technically correct is not as emphasized compared to other Commonwealth nations. So there's a huge myriad of factors that contribute towards the success of sporting codes. Um, it's very systemic in nature, and there's other determinants that we've got to look into that contribute to why certain countries are successful within these different types of schools at the grassroots level. And so for that reason, we can't really call one country to another. Okay. On the SMS line, uh, Mr. Alex, Alex Mutsama, he says, Tabi, so some of your listeners don't understand today's program. They'd rather just blame the government of the ANC by destroying sports at school. But, uh, okay, Alex, let's go to more voice notes. You know, Pratap, it's very sad, honestly speaking, as factual as they may be this observation and his research. But the clear South Africa has a duty to change the whole dynamics of this sport in this country. People should be exposed, kids, our kids should be exposed to any kind of sport which they are willing to play, regardless of their color of the skin or how much they, they can afford. It's Africa Majav from Matadiel. Thanks. Evening, dear member, Tulania from Holland. Thanks for bringing in the talk today. Doc, I want to ask. Did the study consider the economical side of things and also the coaches? Because when the coaches rated high, changes that the coach has connections to recommend the player for the national team so that the player can be represented. And also, when a, a person attends private school, it's because they can afford. Sometimes they are recommended so that the school can be recommended to produce one of the best. Thanks. Okay, thanks for those voice notes. We'll go to the other two. The first one was saying uh, Cricket SA has a duty here. It's a very sad. And Tulani, I'm not sure if I understood you correctly, but you were saying that even the coaching gives the boys an advantage because um, th- th- I'm not sure if I understood that correctly, Tulani. If you can just repeat it all. Dr. Norby, did you pick that up, the second one? Yeah, so I think it was mainly with regards to the feeder of players representing different teams and mm. based on the influence of coaching and coaches. And oh, I think that is definitely yeah. a certain, uh, a, a definitely a very important determinant. We find that a lot of good coaches are employed at boys-only schools. Mm. And 10 to 15 years ago, you know, we, we really had a kind of a different types of equal mix of coaches representing at different boys-only schools. Now we're starting to see that there is a little bit of a mix. 
but before we hadn't. And I think until now, we still don't have an equal representation. So I think even in a lot of the boys only schools, because you have to kind of fit in with that kind of culture that each school provides, mm. and even to the kind of standard that they set for the uh, for the scholars or for the boys to to, represent, to play cricket at a certain level, that is also a factor. So yeah. coaching, the coaching levels, those who are coaches, especially if they have achieved level three or above, are mainly at these boys at school. Find other coaches who are under level three, perhaps level one or level two, are at all the other types of co-ed, private, co-ed, public schools. So coaching and the coaching, and the coaching structure as well as the quality of coaching certainly plays a role in this area, and as well as these coaches having a huge influence on the selection of teams or with their peers within the system to recommend certain players to represent a, a particular team. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be quite cutthroat here that there's some sort of transparency that is required here. We probably need to do an impact assessment to determine, okay, if you are recommending a certain player to represent this team, uh, on what basis are you, are you forwarding the player? And it has to be black and white. Mm-hmm. Runs in, runs scored and wickets taken, etc. So... That's the kind of quality assurance that I think Cricket South Africa needs to start making from the grassroots level going right up to the elite level. We've had that argument actually from former players, some who've given up the game, black players who say that if I'm at a, a franchise or I'm at a club and there are two of us, I'm black, the other one is white, we both have the same talent, uh, same numbers. Uh, the coach, if the coach is white, he will always prefer the white player because maybe that's somebody that they feel that they can trust more than me because they probably come from similar backgrounds and they know what they'll get from them. Let's go to PE quickly. Hey, good to hear from you. Okay, Tabi, so let's, let's get down to it. Um, what the professor there is written could not be challenged, right? Mm. We must take what is good that it comes from there, right? Mm. And I know it gives its energies, and if you know, I would have thought it a high percentage, you know, but it is what it is. One thing, Tabi, so if I call Hesher Gibbs, he wants to run the push high school, or bishops, factually, mm-hmm. right? Secondly, I see a trend now, right? Before you would know, traditionally during apartheid, rugby was Matis and Dickies, mm-hmm. right? Now I see a trend that UWC will be a force to break on it, right? No wonder that um, the last coach was Chester Williams. Prior to him, it was Pete Villiers. So you will find that in that ocean cape, it will not only now be Stellenbosch, right? Which you know, Tabiso, UCT was no match, and this is now is no match to Stellenbosch. Okay, How Wendy, we're going to have to leave it there just for the sake of time, but I've got your point loud and clear. And also, Coach Bola Conradi, also there at UWC. Let's go to one more voice note. Tabiso, it's a, it's a problem when you really look at uh, the way it is being structured. Because not all of us can afford those uh, fancy schools, especially boys' schools, because of that's where you get to find out that you we pay more or a parent has to pay more than what we actually used to. So it's a big problem. So they need to give each and every South African or any person who can play who's like has got a South African citizen like a platform to play because of we love the sport but if it takes that for you to be recognized it's a real problem thank you Tabis um, good evening thank you that's a very uh, interesting and certainly important effort there by professor um, I have a question 
this is Leradum Taum from Bethlehem. Uh, what does this um, 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 research output purport about government efforts or public policy in South Africa? Of course, a purpose of equality uh, and, and democracy. We all know that South Africa is the most economically unequal country in the world. But what does this say about government policy in particular? Thank you very much. Thank you, Mustafa in East London. Good evening. Hello, Mustafa. Hello. Yes, go ahead. Hello. I can hear you. Yeah, we're going to Mr. Okay, thanks. So they are treating to your guest also. Uh, well, I would, I would, I would love to see the transformation you know, in the trigger South Africa. If the trigger South Africa can consider a transformation mm. in terms of uh, giving, uh, giving the black players, you know, the black coaches, uh, you know, we we put in Okay, great stuff, Mustafa. Uh, Doctor Norbay, we've got. A minute and a half left. I'll let you wrap it up, whether you want to answer some of the questions or whether you just want to highlight the purpose of this research paper and, and what we can do now with this information going forward. Thank you, Toby. So I'll end, of course, one of the most important points from the paper, which will also address some of the questions that just came in. Not one player from a rural or township area went to place in Africa unless they were migrated into a boys' only or private schools from grade, from grade 8 onwards. That is a devastating finding. We're not finding any talent identification in township public schools before grade 8, unless they are going and are being feeded into or being supported into a boys' only school from grade 8 onwards. And examples of those is Temba Pavuma, Kahiso Rabada, Makai and Tini, etc., etc. And... Another interesting stat from the paper that I found is that the country's national cricketers between 1992 and 2019 come from fewer than 50 schools, less than 50 schools. Mm. And this is a concern for me because we have thousands of schools in the country and we are unable to produce sports stars on a similar level, which means if we say less than 50 schools out of, say, 1,000 schools, that's 2 to 3% of schools that are producing cricket stars at the highest level, and I'm sure that it's a similar finding for other sporting girls. Two to three percent, that is a very, very low number. From personal experience, I played cricket uh, for many years, and I never played at the highest level. I went to a public school. Mm. And I can also understand from a personal experience, when I looked at other people who had re- went to boys' only schools and went on to represent cricket at the highest level, there was a support structure. There were the coaching standards. There were different type of coaching experiences, facilities. I was playing with boys as well, where one kit bag of gloves, pads, and bats had to be shared among mm. 10 or 11 players. Sure. And that is a key concern. And until today, that is still happening in many teams and in many schools and in many communities around the, the country. So in terms of policy inequality, yes, there are policies and plans in place by the government. But again, it comes back to the old problem. It- mm. Okay. We're going to have to leave it there, folks, just because of time. And apologies for the line there if we kept losing the doctor towards the end. But what a fascinating conversation. What a fascinating paper with Dr. Norba. You can follow him on Twitter and hopefully he can share the paper with the rest of you that want to read it. I'll get his permission and I'll ask him if I'm able to share it. And then I can also share it on our social media accounts. But we have to go to news now.